Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I am your host, Brittany Melton. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And today we're joined with Aaron Isaac, a PhD candidate in history. Aaron, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Aaron, I know that this is a big question. Could you start us off with a little bit about your research topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my doctoral project is looking at 18th century history in Nova Scotia, and I'm particularly interested in the colonies' environmental history and the history of uh, the body or embodied history, as we like to call it in colony, particularly during the 1780s, because there was some interesting environmental stuff happening at that time. That's super interesting. And my main, like, the question that just comes right ahead is, how do you do that? Like, how do you do research about uh, these type of topics in that century? Do you have like historical records? Do you have books? Do you have what is? How do you how do you study? Yeah. So there's a couple of different methodologies that I'm drawing from in history for my project. Uh, so I'll start with the environmental history because that's the easier one. Um, but for that, I'm particularly looking at. Um, written documents. So these would be archival documents like newspapers and also almanacs, uh, diaries where people are tracking weather, things like that, to get a picture of how people were perceiving the weather at the time and the environmental conditions. If they were aware of what was happening, they were in some places writing it down. And sometimes legislation would also be responding to these events. Like if they're overhunting a certain species of birds, they might regulate how many birds can be called those kinds of things are how I get a picture of that. Um, for the embodied history, that's the history of the body. There's a couple ways that historians do that. Sometimes they're looking at uh, one of my favorite articles is by Simon Newman, and he's looking at uh, records of tattoos on sailors in the period, which is really cool. So looking at the actual records of the body that we have. There's also um, people who will draw from bioarchaeology and we'll look at the remnants of the physical remains the, of people alive during this time, which is something that I hope to borrow from a little bit uh, in my own work. But there's also writings about how people are actually experiencing their bodies. So for me, looking at diaries, uh, also there is text where they might be talking about the bodies of other people. So for my own work, looking at how white settlers were perceiving black bodies uh, or indigenous bodies, it's really interesting in addition to how people perceive their own bodies. That is extremely interesting. And I know that you mentioned, you mentioned black bodies, white bodies, indigenous bodies. And I believe you also talk about planters. Mm -hmm. And I actually have a question, which is what are planters? And would you mind explaining it? Yeah. So one of the interesting things and one of the reasons I chose to study Nova Scotia at this time is that there's such a myriad of uh, people living in this place at this time. So planters refers to the New England planters who migrated into the colony after Britain took possession of uh, what was then Acadia and then it became Nova Scotia. So uh, the planters were in the earlier part of the 18th century and the mid 18th century and then the loyalists came after the American Revolution. So it's really two migrations of New Englanders or people from uh, elsewhere in the British Empire that we're talking about there. Yeah, I just, uh, I would like to ask, uh, why are you combining these factors? Like you're combining environment, 
and how people perceive bodies mm -hmm. and why what where did you came from with this idea and why why did you think it's a very like a good combination to study yeah so originally what i thought i was doing when i was first proposing this project was looking at specifically the ways in which the environmental history of New England, Nova Scotia, New France, impacted how people experienced religion and how they experienced race and intersections between those two identities. Um, that comes from you know, my interests in history of religion. Um, but as I was doing my comprehensive exams, I realized that embodied history is a way that I can incorporate both religion and race within the same study, uh, as well as gender, social rank, uh, geography, there's a whole bunch of different things happening that an embodied history allows me to access. Um, so what I'm really interested in is how people articulated belonging. And so the ways in which they engaged with the environment is something I contend um, was a way that they exerted belonging or expressed belonging within the colony. So for white people, this would look very different than from, for instance, Mi'kmaq communities in, in the colony. And the way in which they're using the landscape is going to be vastly different. And it's a way of expressing control over the environment in a period when you can't really control everything. Um, but it's also a way of uh, expressing that you are somebody who belongs there, you're fit for that climate, or you, know, you are fit in a way that other communities aren't in the case of my research. Interesting. And I know that you studied for your master's at the University of New Brunswick. So have you always had a, a, a particular interest in the Maritimes? Or and is doing your master's in New Brunswick something that's kind of carried you through? Or is this, this interest predating that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I'm actually from Saskatchewan originally. I'm a flatlander, as we like to say. And I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Saskatchewan with a specialization in Indigenous history and history of the Seven Years' War. So I went to the University of New Brunswick to work with Elizabeth Menke, who's a well-known um, Atlantic uh, history uh, historian. And so she really pushed me to expand what I was interested in and look at different ways of doing history. And my interest in the Maritimes really comes from that period because beforehand I'd studied primarily New England, whereas being immersed in um, the history of the Maritimes, being there for a few years, uh, I, really, I really started to appreciate the 18th century in that place a little bit more than I had when I was so far away from it. That's excellent. And I was wondering from, your, from what you've been looking at, uh, how can you uh, make inferences of how people perceive their bodies based, for example, in tattoos? Like, which kind of conclusions can you make based on this kind of, this kind of historical records? Mm -hmm. So I should be clear that tattoos aren't actually a huge thing in my study because tattooing was fairly specifically practiced in this period of time. So I'm looking more to the uh, sorts of religious rituals or ways that people cared for their bodies in the colony as a way to try to understand their experience with their bodies. So for example, um, the ways in which they dressed, the ways in which they sheltered themselves in this new climate, 
um, how they protected themselves from the elements. Those are things that I'm interested in. And specifically the ways in which these practices tell us about um, their adaptations into the colony, if they're, if they're newcomers. Yeah, so in that aspect, could you tell us about a little bit about the story of that of that place? Like, what was the first type of population that inhabited that place? Who came next and who had to actually adapt because they were not adapted to that environment? I, I mean, I, I kind of <laughs> can imagine, but could you tell us for sure what actually happened? So I can have an idea of how you are relating those because for me, as an immigrant, <laughs> I had to adapt myself to Canadian weather that is very hostile. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but I guess it's complete, It's a completely different experience for people who has been raised here. Yeah, so by the time that I'm studying, there's a long history of settlers coming into the province uh, or a colony at the time. But the first uh, people who occupied this place within my region of study would of course be indigenous uh, North Americans, specifically looking at the Mi'kmaq and other Wabanaki communities like the Wolfskwe. Um, and then we also have an older French population that continue exist to exist. So the Acadian expulsions of the 1750s are now quite well known, but of course those communities, some continue to exist within Nova Scotia. And so they're still there by my period of study in the 1780s. Um, we also have the planters, like I'd already mentioned, who are from New England, and we have other settlers from elsewhere in the British Empire, including some Scottish settlers um, and some Irish. We have different religious communities, Protestant and Catholic for the most part in the colony. Um, and so with the Black population moving in, that's particularly happening in my period of study after the American Revolution wraps up in 1783. Uh, because the Black Loyalists, as we call them, um, particularly, uh, or they, they migrated in following the American Revolution because that was part of uh, Britain's promise to mostly enslaved Black people who had served uh, with the British during the war. We also have a, a large migration of enslaved Black people who were brought into the colony at this time. So we have both free and unfree Black populations coming into the colony, which is of interest for my study because uh, ownership of your body or a bodily autonomy is uh, not something everyone had. And also we have soldiers or people in the Navy who are also not allowed to uh, desert. So they have limited bodily autonomy in that capacity, not to say that that is in any way the same as enslavement, but there is an interesting conversation there. Um, but yeah, so there, there's, a lot of people who are adapting because this is a huge period of influx into the colony. And I'm kind of wondering, so, and this might, this is just my media studies coming out in me. Um, if, and I, I think that this is probably largely the question that you're looking at, but is the way that we're defining race now as like this construct of race vastly different than what you're seeing in 17th century, like Canada as we know it now? Yeah, so that is a huge part of my research question. So um, right now, what I understand is there was a huge correlation between climate and race. Indigenous people were largely left out of that uh, conversation because they were considered quote unquote untamed, quote unquote wild, 
or a part of the landscape, essentially. So they, like the landscape and white minds, needed to be colonized, whereas Black bodies were seen as unfit to the climate because their bodies were more fit to tropical environments, according to the logic of the day. Um, so there was a huge correlation between climate and race at this time. Um, race, I believe, was a little bit less strictly defined in some ways, but like in every other period of tension or competition, um, it becomes, uh, the categories become harder over time here. And so this is also the period uh, of the Shelburne race riots, which were, uh, which are largely considered the first race riots in Canada, not North America. Um, and they happened in 1784 uh, during the summertime. It was about 10 days in Shelburne where a mob of white loyalists um, ripped down a bunch of free black people's homes. And so this is a really interesting moment for looking at the way that race was understood in the colony at the time. Um, and it's something that I think needs to be studied more, uh, but the loyalists are interesting because they tended to separate themselves from other communities. And so I'm looking at the ways in which that settlement pattern might've impacted their perception of race as well. That's up. Uh very like interesting in the sense that uh you like what you just mentioned is the perception of the people who were colonizing that space but i i was wondering if you know uh what's the perception of the body that for example indigenous people had mm -hmm. and how they did they feel that they were part of the of that land so they will behave differently from people who will just newcomers and had to adapt like what uh, which differences have you noticed be, between those yeah so as a settler scholar of course I kind of follow the lead of permanent indigenous scholars when I'm talking about indigenous bodies and I, I'll be working closely with um, some indigenous uh, historians and community members as I'm doing my research here um, who will be consulting on my project to make sure that I'm in line. So I, I know that it's extremely different. I know that it's also incredibly complicated because uh, within the communities that I'm going to be focusing on, uh, the indigenous population is mostly Mi'kmaq and the Catholic church is extremely important to the Mi'kmaq community at this time. Um, so there is ways in which the community is changing um, but there's also that indigeneity and cultural continuity um, at this time. So no, they don't necessarily perceive themselves in the same way that white colonists would. And um, I'm looking forward to exploring more into how they actually perceive their bodies. And the ways I'm going to be doing that will be a, unique from how I'm studying white bodies, because of course we don't have the same textual records from these communities. So I'll be relying a lot more on material culture, uh, oral history, and things like recipes to try to understand how people are engaging with the environment within those communities. I have a million questions that just came out of that answer. <laughs> but <laughs> specifically, so I, I, I assume, so I'm going to ask, are you using and like utilizing archival work then? Yeah, so um, majority of my archives are what we would call imperial archives or settler archives, colonial archives. So they are repositories that have been collected and curated by settlers. 
Um, so there are certain voices that are not necessarily represented there or represented in the way that I might want for a project like mine. So I will be using archives for some chapters in some of the aspects of my work, but I'll also be using museum collections. I'll also be looking at oral histories that are housed in less formal settings or might exist just within uh, somebody's community. Um, so those archives will not be the only places that I will be looking for sources. Um, I think that's incredibly interesting because if you're looking at what, the way that white people at this time view themselves in relation to then an archive is a great place for that, right? If you say that it, they are uh, settler curated. And so it becomes incredible, I guess, like my, uh, my challenge is, I think about the ways that now uh, indigenous culture has been kind of um, given preference for attention with the 94 calls to action in the past mm -hmm. few years. However, what do we do about the history of black loyalists? Like is is there the same sort of like maybe less formal archival work being done? Yeah, I would say there's actually a huge interest in preserving the histories of Black loyalists in the Maritimes, and there are several uh, historical associations or uh, community-driven efforts to make those more public, make those stories more well known. Um, the Nova Scotia Museum itself has also done quite a bit of work to try to track the uh, Black Loyalist families and those uh, Black refugees who came in the uh, 19th century after the War of 1812. So I wouldn't say that they have been overshadowed by the Indigenous uh, history in the colony by any means. It's more about bringing awareness to all of the diverse verses, I think, and particularly those that have been historically ignored. Absolutely. So uh, have you find so far any similarities between all of the groups that you're studying, like things that they can all of them can relate about their bodies mm -hmm. and the environment that they are experiencing? Well, that is one of the interesting things about choosing a period of environmental crisis. So um, perhaps I can go more into that. Um, in 1783, we have an eruption of a volcano in Iceland, the Lockyer eruption, which continued for about a year after the initial eruption, which spat um, quite a bit of debris into the atmosphere, which caused ramifications uh, or environmental ramifications. So there was, this was a period of drought. It was also uh, a period of extreme cold during the winter. And the result of this, um, was that there was more forest fires than there usually would be. Um, there was also a much shorter growing season was one of the big impacts of this. So communities equally were uh, experiencing the ramifications of this in their dependence on rations between black and white communities, for example, um, in over-reliance on certain stocks of um, for example, fish in the colony. Um, and so we see that they're all struggling with the, with the severe weather, but also the ways in which that impacted their food waste, which is why I'm interested in that. Um, so there was some, equality is not the right word, but there, that was something that everybody endured in the colony. 
And so indigenous communities who were more used to uh, cultural instability, perhaps did not suffer to the same extent that newcomers did, but everybody was, you know, going through this period of extreme cold. And so, yeah, that, that's one of the interesting things about doing environmental history is that while there is environmental racism, and we see that more and more post-industrialization, um, it is also something that can be an equalizing um, measure or something that um, decentralizes the perspectives that we take in history. Sorry, I have to ask what's environmental racism? Mm -hmm. So environmental racism is uh, the, to, to loosely define it probably more poorly than others have before me, um, is the uneven impacts that environmental uh, pollution, for example, that's a big one, will have on communities, particularly communities of color or lower class communities. So this has to do with for example, the location of dumps or water pollution in Canada, access to water is a really big one because as we probably all know, there's not um, access to clean water on all reserves in Canada. There's many reserves that live under boil water advisories and have done so for many years. So environmental racism really is speaking to the uneven uh, environments that we're living in and the harm that some communities have. Um, endured because of their environment. And I kind of, so you brought up earlier the, the reliance on the Catholic church at this time. So I'm kind of curious, what is the centrality of the Catholic church? Like what, what are they doing at this point in time? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question because of course we were talking about a British colony and the Brits are Protestant and are very much anti-Catholic in some capacities and in earlier periods uh, in their legislation as well. But because of the way that they acquired this territory and because of the relationships they have with Indigenous peoples uh, who may be Catholic because they have coexisted with Catholic missionaries, French Catholic missionaries for a very long period of time at this point, um, they have to be a little bit more lenient and accommodating. Um, this comes after the Quebec Act as well, where they make some provision for Catholic worship in that colony. So um, the Catholic Church is not the official church by any means, but they are allowed, missionaries are allowed to practice, particularly among Acadian and Indigenous populations. There isn't as big of a white Catholic, or sorry, British Catholic population at this time. We do have some Irish, as I mentioned before, um, who may be Catholic, but um, the SPG or the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, which is a Anglican organization, is very hard at work in this time, trying to um, convert Black people, Indigenous people in particular, uh, away from the Catholic Church and into Protestantism. So there is um, an interesting element there as to who people are worshiping, um, who is allowed to be a preacher or a minister at this time. Um, that is part of the Shelburne race riots because we have a black minister who is um, preaching to white loyalists, which was part of the upset. I feel like this is a, a great topic to study, but it's also a very complicated one because it was uh, like rough times. 
uh, you had a lot of people coming in, but in rough times, I guess a lot of people will go out as well. So yeah, and we see that as well out. with uh, loyalists and black loyalists leaving. So we of course have the migration of black loyalists into Sierra Leone uh, in the 1790s. We also have a lot of white loyalists migrating elsewhere into what would become Ontario, for example. So one of my interests is in looking at whether climate is a factor in those choices. Interesting. And, and I think that you mentioned as well, the population, like the just stark population drop in and boom, right? Because of, I would assume also this climate related volcanic eruption. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, uh, the volcanic eruption, of course, they wouldn't necessarily be aware of that right away or the environmental impacts that they could have that that could have because um, tracking weather is relatively new at this time and the science of weather is still developing. Um, so they still believe in act acts of God, for example. Um, earthquakes are often interpreted that way. Um, and so there there is a lot of people migrating into the colony who might look elsewhere because of course Britain still has more temperate colonies at this time that they could also chose to choose to locate, relocate to. Um, so that is certainly part of the discourses, um, trying to keep people to stay. A lot of the people in government are trying to keep people to stay at the colony at this time. And how can you measure that or like analyze that from body perspective? Like how can you tell from the perception of people about their own bodies, mm -hmm. about the changes that are occurring in terms of religion and everything. Yeah, so this has to do with the way that the body was understood in the 18th century versus how we understand it now. So in the 18th century, they understood uh, the immaterial body or what we would consider, for example, the soul, but also anything that's unseen, like the humors uh, that people still believed in at this time as well as the material body is being connected. So your immaterial well-being is very much something that impacts your physical health. So religion and religious ceremonies and rituals and uh, devoutness would be perceived as having an impact on your physical health in this period. Interesting. Erin, I feel like I need a web to be able to just see everything that that's going on here it seems like a complicated image however i think that there's somewhere i might be able to get more information from you would you mind sharing where that is yeah so i i do hope that the the web becomes clearer as i get along in my project and maybe one day i'll get my elevator pitch nailed down but um for the moment i have a semi-regularly active history series. Active History is, of course, a blog um, associated with my YouTube channel, which is called Historia Nostra. Um, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N-O-S-T-R-A, which is a YouTube channel. Um, I, I make uh, videos really looking at the way history is told at museums, but, you know, maybe there will be more content about my own research in there at some point. Well, we sure hope so, please. <laughs> Because I think that me and Laura both would appreciate learning more because 28 minutes is not enough to do all of what you're doing justice. <laughs> yeah, perhaps I that, should focus in the future on one part rather than the whole platter. It's okay, I Laura and I will be all over again. <laughs> yeah. And I love the overviews because it gives my like 
my thoughts will go everywhere and then in a couple of years we'll have you again and <laughs> you will narrow down more what you have this of your discoveries mm -hmm. yeah and perhaps uh, my conclusions will have shifted significantly by that time as well as often happens with history projects <laughs> yeah, that's okay but with that we are out of time and so this has been the gradcast the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Brittany Melton, and my co-host was Laura Munoz Viana. We've been speaking with Aaron Isaac. This episode was produced by Laura Munoz Viana. If you would like to get involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcasts, podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select episodes have been published to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.